We'll be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm at that kind of weird spot for, for me at least, in between sermon uh, series. Uh, we've got the Vision Sunday coming up on September the 12th, and uh, I finished the sermon, well, Missions Month in July, and was trying to figure out what in the world what we're going to talk about until September 12th. Uh, but uh, last week, we went to the Beatitudes, and this week I'd like to continue in the Sermon on the Mount. I preached on the whole Sermon on the Mount twice uh, as pastor, and uh, we're not going to go through every verse, I don't believe, um, over the next couple of weeks, but we're probably going to stick right here. As a pastor, you'll learn stealing sermons, borrowing sermons is probably the better term for it, is a good way to go. Uh, you hear a good one, you kind of, you, you make it your own, but you, you adjust it a little bit. Well, the Sermon on the Mountain is Christ's sermon. It's the message that Jesus preached, and you can't improve on that. And uh, so I guess I could just read it to you, but uh, today we're going to add a little uh, a few thoughts in between the verses as well. But I'd like us to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 21. And when you look at the Christian and the Bible, um, if you think through history, after the Babylonian captivity, a lot of the people had kind of forgotten their own language. They, there was a new generation that was born while in captivity in Babylon, and they were learning the Babylonian ways more so than the uh, Israel ways. And, and it seems as though after the captivity, people became so dependent on other people telling them what God said versus trying to read and study for themselves. And then over time, that developed into people kind of changing or adding or subtracting from what God had said. And so then you get into these rules and these regulations that we find in the New Testament with the Pharisees, and they're saying things, and it's not necessarily that what they're saying is wrong, but they're also not saying things that are always uh, necessarily true to what the Bible said, to what God had said. And so in this sermon that Jesus preaches through Matthew 5 through verse chapter 8, we see him kind of... Um, reminding people what the truth is. And as you can see by the description today, ye have heard, but I say unto you. He's saying, and we see this many times throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ said, you have heard it said, you have heard it taught by the religious leaders this. He says, but I say unto you, this is what it actually is supposed to say, what it's actually supposed to mean. Look in verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and thou rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time 
the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. We're going to look at many more verses today. I actually have five pages of notes, but we're going to try to move it quickly uh, this morning. I usually have a page, so uh, we're, I promise we won't, we won't run late on lunch, uh, but uh, we're going to get to it this morning. Lord, help us, I do pray. We do have a lot of verses to cover today and a lot of thoughts, and God, I pray that uh, first and foremost, you'd help me to present them clearly and correctly, and God, I pray that as we look at this message, it was preached thousands of years ago, yet it is still incredibly uh, impactful for our lives today. So God, I pray that you would grow us, teach us, um, Lord, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you would have for us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here we see in this sermon, we start off with an interesting uh, passage here from Jesus as in verse 21. He's talking about murder, but again, as I told you before, the Sermon on the Mount always talks about the heart. It's less about the actions and more about the heart. It's a focus in on what has to be fixed first. And once we get that fixed, then we can be right in every other area as well. And so he says there in verse 21, he says, You've heard it said before that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Right? So this is common sense, uh, in, in my opinion, but it's Bible, which is more important, uh, that the Bible says, Thou shalt not kill. And the law, the, the Jewish law was, if you killed someone, you were then in danger of being put to death yourself, the death penalty. And so he says, you've heard that before, and kind of the focus had all shifted towards murderers. When you murder someone, you're in danger of judgment. But then Christ says in verse 22, I say unto you, it goes deeper than that, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, he shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka, we'll look at that in just a moment, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. So he's going deeper from the action of murder now to the heart of anger. We see here, first of all, this question about injuring lives. And he says uh, there, there's, there's consequence to murder, but more important, let's look at the motive and the consequence of the motive there, which is anger. The source of murder, in most cases, is anger. The same kind of anger that produces murder is a sin. We have been angry without murdering, I hope, uh, uh, in this room today. There have been times in our life where we have been upset and we've been angry at someone, but we didn't take their lives. Well, God says that anger is still not right. The anger that festers up inside, that causes the resentment, that causes the, um, the, the, the desire for revenge, the, the, the desires that come there, the inward resentment, that is still sin. The outward expression of dislike, as it says there, if you call your brother Raka, worthless one, stupid, shallow brains. Now, there's some good insults for you. He says, if you call someone Raka, then you're still in danger of the council. But if you say, thou fool, thou shalt be in danger of hellfire. 
Now, fool, the idea of calling one a reprobate, a rebel, the accusation there against them, the anger that is filled with the, the words that come out. Ultimately, what God is saying here, not just murdering someone is wrong, but being angry unjustly is wrong as well. Your focus has shifted to just the action of killing people when the reality is, is there, are, there are people all over the place that although they haven't physically killed anyone, they still sinned within their heart because they've had anger festering inside of them. There is a just anger. There is a righteous anger. Jesus uh, exemplifies that for us later on. But we see this, 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 I think we understand this, right? Anger that we get inside of us. That person did me wrong. How dare they? That judgmental spirit that comes uh, with the anger that we have, God says it's not good, it's not right, and it's going to be punished because it is sin. There's moral consequences with this as well. In verse 23, he talks now about people who are angry with brothers, uh, fellow Christians, with, with neighbors, and here he says in verse 23 that therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar, you're coming to worship, you're coming to sacrifice, and you rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. There's something that you have done that has caused a, a rift. There's a problem. He says, leave your gift, your sacrifice here at the altar and go first and be reconciled with him. If there's something between you and someone else that has not been taken care of, before you come to worship, you need to go get that taken care of. We've talked about this before, but if you're going to come to God, you cannot obey God and be wrong with man. In order to be in full obedience with God, you have to be right with the people in your life. If you're wronging someone else, you can't be righting God. I know that's not a, a real term. Uh, you can't be right with God. Can't say, oh God, I'm under surrender, I'm surrendering to you, God, I'm following you, God, I'm obeying you. And God looks at you and goes, No, you're not, because I've told you to love your neighbor. I've told you to forgive them who have wronged you. And I've told you to reconcile with them and who you've wronged. And until you do that, you're not right with me. Oftentimes in the Christian life, we get this piousness about us where we go, you know what? That person deserves anything that they get. They did this to me, they did that to me, and I'm just going to forget about it. Okay, well, have you forgiven them? Because if you haven't, there's something that still needs to be reconciled. You know, you can forgive people without them asking for forgiveness. If you don't, then, then you're probably not going to forgive very many people. <laughs> because let's face it, a lot of times people don't ask for forgiveness amongst each other. But you can still forgive them. I know people who have held on to things for years and decades of their lives because they refused to forgive someone. Oftentimes, those people didn't even know they'd done wrong to them. We take things so personally, we sit there and we go, boy, this person said this, and I know what they meant. <laughs> maybe they did, but maybe they didn't. Reconcile with them. Forgive them. If you've done the wrong, ask for forgiveness. And then come back. And then worship God. He says in verse 26, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. <clears throat> verse 27, 
he's transitions now away from the anger and away from the uh, the 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 resentment that is in hearts. And now he's as he's talked about the importance of getting it forgiven. Now he comes into the question of lusts, and he says in verse twenty-seven, "Ye have heard it said uh, by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery." But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, the focus had been on the action um, here, and we see that God points out very clearly there's more to it than the action committed. It is the heart that led to the action that committed the sin. And he says here in verse 28, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already. The Mosaic law said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's true, but there's more than that. Verse 28 saying, Looketh on a woman to look, to keep on looking, to observe closely with desire. It's the second look. There are some things you cannot avoid seeing. Right? You accidentally see. But then there are oftentimes the second look. The knowing I shouldn't look, but I'm going to look anyways. If you don't look and you don't keep looking, it's going to help you refrain from further sin. Um, Pastor Jim Shetler, who pastored down in Pensacola for a long time, he has a great sermon and he talks about uh, within the sermon, he talks about this, uh, how many seconds it takes for a thought to fester. And for, a, for something you see to become a thought, for that thought then to become uh, a temptation. And I think it was something like four seconds. I don't remember what it was now. But, uh, but it, it, it's a whole message on victory. If you Google it, I'm sure you can find it. Nonetheless, it's Aaron talks about this. And you see a lot of times we have this, we see something accidentally, something comes walks in front of us or something happens on TV or whatever, and you can look away. But a lot of times, it's that linger. And God says, that's a problem in the heart. And that heart problem is just as bad as the physical action of adultery. Because ultimately, that heart problem leads to the adultery. People who have affairs... Um, a lot of times we'll just say, well, it just kind of happened. It was just so fast, I'm not sure what happened. No, <laughs> it, it, it's, not, it's not how it works. You don't just fall into an affair. The heart begins seeing things that it should not see, hearing things it should not hear, feeling things that it should not feel. And as that uh, we allow that to continue to build because we don't take care of it from the get-go, then that becomes a problem that leads to the action. It starts with the heart. And if the heart is wrong, then we see it's going to lead to action as well. And God says not just the action of adultery is wrong, but the heart that leads to it is wrong as well. That looking on, lusting for God takes this very seriously. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 29, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And it cast it from thee. For it, if it, excuse me, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not thy whole body should be cast into hell. 
And so he says here in verse 29, if you're looking and you find yourself with that second look, with that lingering look, and it just continues to be better, it'd be better for you to pluck your eyeball out than to continue living with that lustful sin. He goes on in verse 30 and he says, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it far from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and that not thy whole body should be cast into hell. Again, this is, I believe, a picture. I don't think God's saying go cut off your hand. But he's telling you the importance of refraining from sin. And he says if it's going to be a problem for you, find a way to stop it. So if your eye offends you, you pluck it out, your eye can't offend you anymore. If your hand offends you, you cut it off, it can't offend you anymore. It's like the countries who, when the people get caught stealing, they cut their hand off. Well, they're not going to steal again. <laughs> or maybe one more time, but after that, I'm going to cut the other hand off. Okay. You see, God is saying it's important that we get ahead of the problem. Because it starts in the heart. If we can get the heart right, then we can keep the actions right. But when we don't get the heart right, it's going to lead to further action. And we're sinning when the heart's wrong, and we continue to sin when the action is wrong as well. He goes on, and kind of in the same light, he gets into marriage a little bit more. It's important to know that God instituted marriage. He instituted this back in the garden with Adam and Eve. He created one man and one woman, and he created them to be together for a lifetime. He established the marriage before he established the law, before he established the church. Marriage was an institution that God made. And God is very, very, very in love with the concept of marriage. He wants it to be successful. I tell people all the time, if you want a successful marriage, all you have to do is follow the Bible. God lays it out for you how to, be, how to have a successful and a good marriage. When I counsel with people, and the first thing we go over is the fact that the counsel I'm about to give you is going to be straight from the Bible. It's not going to be uh, from a help book. It's not going to be just personal advice and opinion. It's just the Bible because the Bible is the one thing because it's God's word and God created marriage. So God knows how to make marriage work. And so that's what we're going to look at to help help the marriage. But he says here, and he's talking specifically in verse 31, it says, And it has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time that thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform to them to the Lord thy oath. So we see here this commitment that is being made of marriage. And God says uh, it is meant to last a lifetime, but you've been told that uh, whosoever shall put away his wife, just let him give her a, a writing of divorcement. He says, but I'm saying that you should not do that. As a matter of fact, he says, um, whosoever shall put away his wife, divorce his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, that's the exception that is made, causeth her to commit adultery, causeth, uh, uh, and whosoever shall marry her to do the same. And we see here this law that is given for marriage, and the law seems to make a provision for divorcement, uh, uh, for, for things that are unclean. And this is covered again in Matthew 19. There was a, uh, you look throughout society, there were different reasons. There were some societies, I think it was the Greeks, that basically the guy could do whatever he wanted. Um, but if the girl messed up at all, the wife messed up at all, she could be divorced. 
She could be thrown out to the side. She could be tossed away. But the man was never held responsible for it. Uh, you look throughout society's different ways. There are people who believe women are only there for childbearing. Uh, there are people who believe women are nothing. They are, they are just a possession. Things like that. God says, no, remember, uh, I created man and I created woman. And they are equally loved by God and held up by God. They do have roles. God gave that to us in, in Ephesians chapter 5. That's a whole other sermon. Uh, but there are roles for men, and there are roles for women that if fulfilled, according to the Bible, again, create the perfect marriage. But oftentimes when we try to get out of those roles or responsibility that God gives us, it's going to cause friction. It's just what's going to happen. But here he's specifically speaking of this matter because there were people, men specifically, who were just kind of just getting rid of their wives. They didn't have any reason for it. They didn't, there was no, there was no, she wasn't doing anything wrong. And they were just saying, I'm kind of tired with this. I'm just done with this woman. And so I'm going to divorce her. And God says, well, if you divorce her and there was nothing, no fornication, no reason for divorcing, then what happens is, is now she's going to commit adultery if she remarries because she's married to you. And God ties you together. You see this, this uh, um, situation where God says, he, he gives the one reason why God says it's okay to divorce. He doesn't say you have to divorce someone if there's fornication, but he says there is an allowance there in God's eyes for a marriage then. The person who did not commit adultery or fornication was then free from any guilt of leaving the marriage. And we see this here, this divorce for any other cause. And, and again, Matthew 19 goes into more detail on this. But Christ here is teaching very simply for people. You've heard this, but I'm saying this. It's black and white. It's the way God sees it. It's not no longer man's interpretation of laws, but it's, it's, it's God's uh, uh, interpretation of the way the law was designed and written and given to us. Now, I don't believe that if someone is divorced that they are useless or godless or anything like that. But I do believe, like anything else, if it's done in a way that God is not agreed with, then, then at that time it was sin and it needs to be taken to God for forgiveness. You see, especially nowadays, and I say nowadays, it's the, it was the same obviously back here, maybe worse back here. People, when it comes to commitment, don't understand the importance that God places on it. I've heard the phrase, well, I just fell out of love. <laughs> I guarantee that, that there's not a whole lot of love uh, there on either side, more than likely. But the reason why people fall out of love is because they don't follow the Bible's design for marriage. How do I know that? Because the Bible says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ doesn't fall out of love with the church. Well, what does the church do? He fails God over and over again. But Christ doesn't fall out of love with us. And he says, the example that I give you to follow as a husband is as I, Jesus Christ, love the church. You love your wife. When she's lovable and when she's not lovable, it doesn't matter. You love her. And the Bible says in Ephesians, man, I'm going to get, this is even in the notes, uh, the wife, Submit to the husband. And I know in this day and age of women's liberation, you say, oh, that's just horrible. It's not horrible if it's done biblically. Not that you're under the thumb of your husband. 
It's not that he's the king and you're the lowly servant. It's a team. God created Eve to be a help meet, a completer of Adam. And marriage is made that way where the husband and the wife come together. They work together side by side, not one in front of the other. The husband is held responsible by God for the way the house is run. But the wife is held responsible for the way that she acts, for the things that she does. Is she obedient to God? If she is, and if he loves his wife and is obedient to God, the marriage works. It's when one or both of the spouses don't obey God anymore that the friction comes in the marriage. He goes on, these are, I know that we can spend a whole day on this and we're not going to, I need to keep moving, but we see this again, God putting it out here for us. This was a problem going on, especially in this time. And he's saying to them, again, it comes back to the heart. It's not just the action. Think about what you're doing. He gets into uh, some different things with broken promises. Verse 33 again. Again, you have heard that it had been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is the footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for in the city for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatever, uh, whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. He's saying here, when you make a promise, fulfill it. When you forswear, and then you commit perjury. If you don't make a promise that you cannot keep, for whatever reason, there was a time uh, in the, uh, I'm trying to remember when that was now, uh, but nonetheless, there was a time where uh, the, if you swore by God, I think it was the Old Testament, making an oath on God's name was, was granted, therefore making it binding. So the oath was in God's name, therefore it is now official. But then people began saying, just to make it official, they swore by God's name, and they didn't follow God. They didn't obey God. They didn't do anything with God. And God says, "This isn't, you know, this wasn't the purpose. This isn't working out the way it was supposed to work. You have now perverted the issue." And so He said, "You got to stop that." And then He goes on to the other things not to swear on. You know, I swear on my mother's grave. You hear that a lot. He says, "Don't do those kinds of things." Um, he says, "Don't swear even on your own head because you have no control over your own head." Whether you have white hair or black hair or brown hair or red hair or blonde hair, it's all under God's control. Now, I know you can, you can dye your hair, but ultimately God knows your true hair color even if no one else does. And uh, we see here he's talking about this, and it comes down to the point of very simply in verse number 37, let your communications be yay, yay, or nay, nay. If someone asks you, you either say yes or no, and if you say yes, do it, and if you say no, don't do it. It doesn't have to get all elaborate and legal. Just be a person of your word. Why do we have to swear on things? Why can't your yes just be yes? Or your no just be no. Speak firmly. We see he goes on and talking about retaliation. Verse 38. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We see here God gets into the very simpleness of justice, uh, of retaliation, of revenge, all being here. He says um, in verse 39, this idea of turning the other cheek, it's, it's, a, it's a meaning of mild response. Responding mildly when things go on. When Christ was slapped in the face, um, you know, did he literally turn the other cheek? I don't know, but he showed us that even though he had the power, power of one thought, power of one word, the power of one snap, to drop everyone dead that was beating him, he didn't do it. We see here that. Christ came for a purpose, did he not? And had he responded in another way, his purpose would have been ruined. Are we responding in a way that still helps us accomplish our goal of reaching the lost world for Christ? So, yeah, but they're being mean, okay? Are they nailing you to a cross? Smashing thorns into your head? Are they spitting on you? Maybe that one might, might be happening. Are they plucking out your beard? You see, Christ is the example. And he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Revenge. Retaliation. He says, but I tell you to respond mildly. As a matter of fact, I tell you to reconcile. In verse 43, if you skip down for sake of time today, he says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if we love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? But ye therefore, excuse me, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. He says, you've been told to love your enemy and uh, excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, no, you should love your enemy too. That's not easy, is it? I mean, they're enemies, my goodness. But he says here and reminds us here to bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, pray for them which despitefully use and persecute us. The law was written, if you remember, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Do you remember reading in the Bible after that verse where it says, and hate your enemy? No, that was something that was added. And here he's looking at them and he's, he's saying the old phrase, if I may uh, say it, kill them with kindness. 
They're doing you wrong. They're lying about you. They're whatever it is. He says, you be kind. You love them. He talks about the publicans multiple times here. They were kind of the lowest of the low. Not a whole lot of people loved the publicans. They were working with the Roman government. Um, they, were not, they were not people that most people enjoyed. But he says, love, love them all. He says there in verse 46, um, if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? If you only love those people who are good to you, what, what does that do? That's easy, is it not? When people love you, it's easy to love them. I've heard people, they say, I don't like that person. So why not? He's mean. And I meet that person, he's as kind as could be. And I'm thinking, I don't get it. But then when I'm the person saying, I don't like that person because he's mean, and the other person's going, I don't get it. And then I'm saying, you fool, you, you shallow brains. Uh, you know, I'm sitting there going, wait a second. What do you mean you don't get it? He's mean. Harder to love. But God says, if you only love those that love you, what, what's, what's the point? If you only greet your brothers, those that think like you, look like you, act like you, what's the point? He said, even the lowest of the low do that. Your reward comes when you love those that hate you, those that despise you, those that go against you, those that are mean to you, those that lie about you. That's where your reward comes when you love them. And it closes out the chapter, not the sermon, but the chapter in verse 48, when it says, Be ye therefore perfect. Now wait a second. How can I be perfect? I'm a human. The idea here in perfect, if you go back and look at the Greek, is the simple idea of full development, complete, mature. It doesn't mean sinless, like we use the word today, perfect. It just means completed, growing in maturity and growing in godliness. And here we see, um, again, this is something we strive for. It's not going to be something that we're probably going to complete on this earth. But he's saying strive for spiritual maturity, perfection, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. You see, the reason why we should love our neighbors and our enemies, the reason why we should fulfill our marriage roles, the reason why uh, we should not be angry, the reason why we should not uh, for swear or swear. The reason why we should do these things is in the effort of being like Jesus Christ. If you try to be like the pastor, you're not going to get very far. You might be like me, but you're not going to get very much, a whole lot closer to Jesus. Ask my kids. Not my wife. I'm pretty awesome to her, but... Uh, 
told you the story before, talking with someone. She goes, I feel like my spiritually my husband is here, and, and I'm down here, and I'm just trying to get up there to where he is. I said, no, that's not, that's not our goal. It's not to be like other people. It's not to compare ourselves to other people. It's to be like Jesus Christ and to be where Jesus Christ wants you to be on that spiritual level. How do you get there? You read your Bible. The old kid's song. Read your Bible. Pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Perfection, as used here in the scriptures, full development, growth in spiritual maturity. Read your Bible. Pray every day. And you'll grow. Bird just hit the window. I'm easily distracted. It's those simple things. The things that we get told about as kids that we need to do, but we don't take seriously. And we sit here as adults and we say, well, be ye perfect as God is perfect. Well, how in the world can I ever get to where God is? How in the world can I ever get to the, the spiritual development where God is? You know, I, I, I can't, but I can strive for it. And how do I do that? I do the things that God tells me to do, which is read my Bible, pray, go to church or hear preaching, hear, hear the word of God presented, and draw closer to him. Because if I draw closer to God, God will draw closer to me. You want to grow? Do what you know you're supposed to do. As the late Bob Jones said, do right, do right, do right. And I know it sounds easy, and I know that it's not easy. It's going to take work. And that's the problem we get into as Christians where we go, listen, I, I told God that I want to, I want to surrender to him, and I want to follow him, and I want to, I want to obey him, and I want to do everything for him. And then all of a sudden, something comes along the way, and all of a sudden, you realize, wait, it's not easy. It's not easy to do right. But it's sure easy. Everybody will do it. For whatever reason, we think that because we are Christians, it's now going to be. He's not wasting his time on them. They're already going to hell. He's working on you. He's working on me. He's trying to get us to fail so that we can't win those people that are lost. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to get this person upset. No, they're not going to murder anybody. But when they lash out in anger, guess what? The person who they were trying to share the gospel with them says, why would I want to? I'm going to get that person to break their promise, their commitment. Because when they do that, they won't be trusted anymore. I'm going to get that person to be your enemy. That's the God within us, isn't it? You see, the reason why it's not easy is because Satan focuses. The, the more right you get with God, I know this sounds not encouraging. The more right you get with God, the more Satan is going to attack. If you're not faithful in reading your Bible, if you're not faithful in praying, if you're not faithful in going to church, Satan's going to love you. 
they wanted to work on that case, so they did an image study. And God says, I can overcome this. I can give you victory. I can give you strength. I can give you wisdom. God is there. He's helping us along the way. And when the temptation comes, we say, God, I need help. And God says, I'm right here. You see, when Christ is preaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us that it starts with the heart. It doesn't start with the action. So as a Christian, we ought to be dialed in on where our heart is. David prayed, search me, O God. He says, I need you to look at, at the innermost part of me. My thoughts and my heart. Make it clean. Make it right. Because as much as the adultery was wrong and sinful, David understood, it started here. Until I get that right, it's not going to change. So I ask you this morning to examine your own heart What's in your heart today that shouldn't be there? Ask God to forgive it, to cleanse it. And I encourage you today to strive for perfection, for spiritual maturity, for completion. You're not going to get it on your own. You need God to do it, but it's going to take work. And I encourage you to dedicate today to surrender it to God, to put in that work, keep your heart where it's supposed to be. You've broken promises, have you broken commitments, get it right. Have you wronged somebody and you've never went to them to get it right? That's not an easy thing to do. I know of a lady who's in her late 50s, had been holding on, holding on to something for two decades. And the other person was in the same room. And she went and talked to her. Something, just simple little things, personality kind of things. 20 some odd years earlier that she'd been holding on to. Cleared the air, so to say. Asked forgiveness. It freed her up now to live not easy to ask for forgiveness, especially when it's things that have happened a long time ago. But I tell you, if there's something in your life today, uh, someone in your life that you have wronged, and you've never gotten it right, if you want to receive God's full blessings, you need to get it right. If there's someone who's wronged you and you're holding on to that grudge, I think it's good to go talk to them. But at the end of the day, they still might not respond to what you want them to. It's still your responsibility to forgive. If they're now your enemy, God says, love them. But it all starts here. Let's get that right so that our actions will be right as well. Lord, help us. God, help us to love you so that we can love others. God, help us to understand the importance of having our heart be where it's supposed to be. 
Lord, I pray that we would truly obey and follow you. Help us today with the areas that you've spoken to us about, I pray in Jesus' name. Heads bowed and eyes closed. The piano's going to play. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would, please. I'm not going to ask you any other questions today, but if God's spoken to you about something today, I pray that you take care of it. You're welcome to come to the front and kneel if you'd like. You're welcome to stay at your seat. But don't leave out the auditorium today without taking care of the things that God's spoken to you about today. Search your heart. Ask God to search your heart and to bring up the things that need to be changed and allow Him to make those changes in your life.